Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, April 17th. Before I run through today's news as well as conclude our series asking the question of which woman should be named the fifth most accomplished player in the open era, I have to let all of you know that these podcasts are made possible day in, day out by our friends at Diadem Sports, and you know the pitch I'm going to make to you. Diadem Sports is truly helping tennis players across the globe elevate their games by designing the most innovative performance tennis gear on the planet. You know about their Elevate 98. You know about their Nova 100. You know about their five different sets of strings. All of their gear is developed with your performance in mind. Each of their rackets carefully crafted for a specific type of playing style, whether your game permits power and explosiveness, precision and control. They'll have the best options to help you take your game to the next level and you know it was an emotional week for me because I we I have a group chat that I'm a part of in the text thread and someone pointed out that this week I think it was on Wednesday was our three-year anniversary of Maxwell Labauer Rothman myself and my University of Michigan club tennis team going down to Orlando and capturing a club tennis national title now I'm not going to talk about those exploits again I'm not going to talk about how dominant Max and I were against Harvard in the round of 16 against Georgia Tech in the quarterfinals how we beat a team in UCLA in the semifinals, at least in men's doubles, that was clearly better than Max and I, but we had that cohesive doubles performance. They were separated, two great singles players, but just didn't know each other's games as well as Max and I did at that point. I'm not going to rehash any of that. I'll simply say this. It's been a while since I've caught that flame, since I've started that spark that used to drive me to be on the tennis court. But, you know, I got the chance to try out a diadem racket, and it did all of that for me plus more. I finally felt comfortable playing. And if you're not going to take my word for it, uh, go check out their website because there are more testimonials there. If it's good enough for the pros, it's good enough for you. And if you go to their website right now, diademsports.com, Use our promo code CR50. You'll get 50% off all of your tennis needs, whether it's strings, balls, rackets. You need a new hoodie. You need a new drawstring bag to carry everything to the court to. They've got it all. It's your one-stop shop for all of your tennis shopping needs. So be sure to go to their website, diademsports.com. Use our promo code CR50. They are so kind uh, in continuing to support us. The least we can do is ask you, the listener, to go support them as well. And I also have to give a quick shout-out, something I did not do that I meant to do yesterday, to all of our Patreon subscribers. It means the world to us here at Crack Rackets that so many of you are willing to contribute uh, to us financially at a time like this to continue to support our work. And even to those of you who aren't Patreon members but just continue to reach out and you know say kind things on social media or post, you know, podcasts, uh, notes, response, uh, all of these different communications are just, it means the world to us. So we really appreciate that. And in fact, I do want to give a special shout out uh, to one of our Patreon members. It's a person we've actually had on the podcast before. Now, you know, in theory, I shouldn't like this person. And in fact, Part of me says I don't like this person, but of course I know how beneficial this person is to the game of tennis, how spirited they are, how passionate they are about the sport.
board. And I respect that, even if I don't respect his employer, given just the birth ties that I have. And that, of course, is my good friend, Harry Jaden, who I do respect the world out of, who, of course, is doing a tremendous coaching job at Michigan State University, who has been so supportive of us here at Cracked Racket, someone I know I can always text and ask a question to, and he will always respond to me. So shout out to you, Harry Jaden. We appreciate the support. I will remind all of you that Harry Jaden holds a Michigan high school tennis uh, record, in fact, because he played a match where he did not lose a point. I think it was 6-0-6-0 in like 26 minutes, something crazy like that. Of course, he grew up in D2 in Michigan. I grew up playing D3, so no, we never faced off. I also think he's a little bit older than me, which maybe he won't appreciate me saying, but hey, you know, it's not that much older, and that's just a fact. I'm not going to say, hey, I'm way younger than him, when, or hey, he, you know, uh, him and I are the same age. I think he was like a I want to say he was my brother's age, maybe 2010, 2011. I'm a little bit, you know, I was class of 2013 in high school, or maybe you didn't know that, and now you do. Um, But, you know, for him, he was an incredible high school tennis player, obviously an incredible college player, an All-American at Michigan State as well, but... Yeah, when Harry played uh, high school tennis in East Lansing, fall of 2007, he played a match when he didn't lose a single point. He's one of two players in Michigan high school history to pull that sort of thing off. So, Harry, hey, great shot to you. And, of course, we really appreciate your continued support. Westoff, can I get a thank you sound effect from you as well? All right, so we got the thank you out of the way. We got the shout-outs out of the way with the plug for Diadem, the plug for Patreon. By the way... We would appreciate all of you who go on to our Patreon. You start searching Cracked Rackets. You can contribute at various levels. If you do, you'll get access to certain content. We haven't released that. You'll get early releases. You'll get uncensored podcast shout-outs on the pod, like I'm giving to Harry right now. Um, but you can find all that. And again, we are so grateful to all of you who have taken the time to contribute, especially in a time like this where there's so much uncertainty surrounding so many things in so many people's life. But with that being said... Let's get to the news. And yesterday we had a full sledge of news, full sledge, full, I guess, throated, full slot. I I don't know what the term I'm looking for, no analogy there, but we had a lot of news to talk about. And so, you know, today a little bit less so heading into the weekend. I mentioned earlier, uh, because I recorded the Thursday podcast for me, I'm recording this Friday podcast on a Thursday night. I recorded the Thursday podcast Thursday morning, double mini break day to me. Hey, great shot, but... It was reported that the USDA, and this is from Brett Haber, the USDA, again, and Colette Lewis, multiple sources, people who were on the call. There was a media call with members of the media and the USDA earlier today, and the USDA today said it's highly unlikely they would play the U.S. Open without fans if condition, you know, or it would be unlikely for them to play the event if fans aren't going to be allowed in. We talked about it yesterday. I think it's between 400 and $500 million in revenue that the U.S. Open generates for the USTA. It funds everything that the USTA is able to do at the local level in terms of expansion, in terms of junior facilities and training and subsidies and grants and all of these different things, all funded by the U.S. Open and it, the windfall that the, the organization gets from that. And 
look, the U.S. Open doesn't have pandemic insurance, and so they wouldn't get the sort of financial uh, backing that Wimbledon got when it canceled the event. That's obviously why the U.S. Open going to hold out as long as possible. Now, I don't expect them to make a reckless decision, and they've been very candid, very clear, saying we are listening to health experts. If at the time they say, no, you can't do it, there's not going to be a fight, they're just not going to do it. Uh, But they're not canceling those events yet, and it's interesting because I think it was at Michael Samelski uh, at the moment. Here's what the U.S. Open has planned as scheduled. Qualies, August 24th to 28th. Main draw, August 31st to September 13th. Main draw ceremony, August 27th. Arthur Ashe Kids Day, August 29th. Uh, Those are a lot of events, and they're coming up quicker and quicker. And, of course, we're still midway through April. And, you know, at this point, all of us, I think, are going to be in quarantine for at least a month longer, if not maybe more than that, certainly. You know, we're not going to get into politics here. Don't worry. But, you know, if, if none of the tour is not resuming before July 13th, uh, this is not long after that. But, you know, we've seen events already that are scheduled for post-July either be canceled or try and move their event postponed, certainly to a later date. The U.S. Open, for now, is holding firm at playing in, you know, August 31st to September 13th. And so, a lot of that is subject to change, and they've already announced, you know, the USTA yesterday what they intend to do to help subsidize all of the coaches and all of the clubs that are taking a hit in a time like this, how they're still going to support local tennis and how financially they've already paid for all of that. If you missed that article, you can either hear me talk about it in yesterday's mini break news section or go check out the article from Christopher Clary on the New York Times where he elaborates on that and more and has quotes from members of the USTA. Uh, But that's just an interesting thought. Again, that was the takeaways, I suppose, from the USTA press conference that, again, they held earlier today for the media. A couple of other things. At Open Court, Stephanie Miles, uh, who wrote the Bianca Andreescu book, she, of course— is hearing, uh, she tweeted out something that I think a lot of us are hearing, and the early word is that the various tennis organizations are going to get together and try and offer 10K to every player ranked between 250 and 700. Now, of course, we'll still see if that materializes, but according to her math, that averages out to a total output of about $9 million. And we talked yesterday where the USTA, where the AT, or excuse me, where the ATP, WTA could find that sort of money, a lot of it in the end of year bonuses that are guaranteed for the top-ranked players. You know, it, that's more than $9 million for the ATP. I think it was 11 for the ATP, $4 million for the WTA. And, you know, to take money out of one player's pocket and put it in another's, that's, that's why there are no unions. That's why things are always so difficult to figure out in tennis from a logistics and organization standpoint. Uh, but, you know, if something like this happens, if it materializes, we continue to say, you know, how are we going to help the lower-ranked players? And, of course, this would certainly be one way to do that. And, again, I quoted him yesterday, but Anna K. Forever, Old Lake S., pointed out uh, just how much the players ranked 300, 400, 500, 600, and 700 respectfully on the ATP earned in prize money in 2019. The number 300 player in the world makes 55K. And again, you may think to yourself, okay, that's a pretty good income, but think about all the traveling and think about all the coaches and the expenses that you accumulate in a profession like tennis. And I'm not saying you don't accumulate expenses in non-tennis professions because, of course, we all accumulate expenses. But 55k when you have to travel as often as a player does that's difficult you know the number 400 player made 18k 500 21k 600 12k 709k 
I mean, the 21K is on the border, but I'm pretty sure all four of those salaries would put you under the poverty line. And so you're talking about now over 400-plus players, 500-plus players whose incomes in 2019 were under the poverty line, and they lose a year of income, and it's not like they can supplement, uh, supplement, I I wanted to say supplement, hey, great shot to me. It's not like these players can't find a way for to supplement, that's the word I'm looking for, their income. There is no supplemental income when you can't teach lessons, when you can't do all of the many things that tennis players like to do, uh, or that they try, need to do, I suppose, are required to do service hitting partners, etc. When there's no tennis being played throughout the country, throughout the globe, really so much of the world is on lockdown, is in quarantine. So those are certainly concerning figures, and if they can get a 10K to every player, that would be great. The last story, last story I have for everyone, and it's a new series launching. I've been quoting her a lot recently, but Danielle Rossing of Forbes launching a new series talking about uh, the financial stakeholders in tennis and hearing from them. It says, in the first of a series of interviews with stakeholders in tennis about how they are navigating the pandemic, she talks to Mark Leishy and Ann Worcester, the chairman and chief executive and president, uh, respectfully, of UTR, Universal Tennis Rating, which we know so much about. We've talked about at length here at Correct Rackets, but it's really an interesting uh, interview series. You can find it, again, Tennis During Corona, Q&A with Mark Leishy and Ann Worcester of Universal Tennis on Forbes.com. They talk about the structure of UTR as an organization, how it was growing as a business, how it it planned, uh, you know, how its plans are affected by the coronavirus, how they are adjusting to it, what they plan to do moving forward to stay healthy, to stay in the strong place. Uh, Lee, she talks about how, Lee, Lee, excuse me, talks about how the company was growing and how they're up to 60 people and how they've advanced beyond just the UTR rating metric and they're launching events and doing all of these different things. And talks about all the coaching seminars and getting, you know, people from around the tennis globe connected in the UTR All Access series, working with their partners at Oracle, at Tennis Channel, etc. You know, their partners are with Roger Federer's management company, Team 8, and so many more. And just, you know, trying to figure out uh, what they can do moving forward. It's a really interesting uh, Q&A, and considering it's the first in this series, I'm very much looking forward to the rest uh, of the series from Daniel Rossing. And again, you can go find that on Forbes.com. Don't want to give it away. Every click counts, so be sure you go support journalism in every form possible and go check out Daniel Rossing's uh Danielle Rossing's excuse me article because it was really good but that's today's news when we come back from a quick commercial break I will complete our series from this week looking at who should be named the fifth most accomplished player in the open era I will weigh the statistics of Justine and Venus Williams and Monica Sellis all I will compare and contrast and I will give you my final answer when we come back after this quick break. So let me just do a quick reminder for all of you listeners in case you forgot what this week's exercise was all about. At the beginning of the week, I said I had picked three players from the open era history on the WTA Tour who I thought were all worthy candidates to be considered the fifth most accomplished player on WTA Tour in the open era. And the reason we're competing for fifth, the top four, just given what they all accomplished at the Grand Slams, given all of their individual peaks, given their 
their best seasons. Uh, There's no question in my mind, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova, Steffi Graf, Serena Williams, in whatever order you want to put them, they're the top four. And I've said this before, why we're even debating Federer, Djokovic, Nadal when we could still be debating Navratilova, Everett, Steffi Graf, and Serena Williams. That's the fun debate. Some of their seasons, Navratilova had an 88 in one season, I think. Like, are you kidding me? 88 and 1. Djokovic started a season 44, 45 and 0, and it it was historic. It was pa- you know pandemonium, and we continue to talk about that. But Navratilova did something crazy. Steffi Graf, I, I said this yesterday, but she won four slams and a gold medal in 1988, and that might not be the best season of her career. That's how good she was as a professional tennis player. But they are not the subject of this week's breakdown, and maybe they'll be the subject of future breakdowns. But the subject this week was three separate players. On Monday's podcast, I talked about Justine Ennen. On Wednesday's podcast, I talked about Venus Williams. And yesterday, I talked about Monica Seles. I broke down the peaks of their careers. For Ennen and Venus, their five-year career highs, their best five-year stretch of their career. Uh, Monica Seles is obviously a slightly different case. I had used this word sparingly because, you know, not many things are unique. Or I think that word is just so wrongly used all the time. And you know, people try to put degrees on unique. They say, it's this really unique. It's this super unique. It's this very unique. No, something's either unique or it's not. It's one of a kind or it's not. And I do think the circumstances of what happened to Monica Seles, those are unique. Her career being interrupted in 1993 because of, you know, obviously the stabbing that occurred, that's a unique circumstance in tennis's history. That's a once-in-a-lifetime moment. That's unique. Anyways, uh, that's my grammar, uh, I guess patrol for the day. Um, Anyways, uh, we were breaking down the three of them because I thought they're all three different spectrums. I think if you look at five-year peaks, and again, through no fault of Celis's on her own, the five-year peak of Justine Ennen is the best of the three players. I think you look at longevity, what career totality, just how long, you know, longevity, you all know what that means, how long their career lasted and just the totality of wins accumulated and titles and finals and wins at slams and etc reached you know venus for sure uh, is on the leaderboard there and then you throw in doubles accomplishments as well all of the slams she's won in doubles the three gold medals she's won in doubles uh the fact that she won her first 14 slam finals in doubles that she's 22 and one in 23 career doubles finals that all speaks for itself but in terms of greatness, in terms of who at their peak was compared to their peers, the best tennis player, who was the number one player for the longest period of time, you know, comparatively, that's Monica Seles, hands down. She's the best teenager in tennis history. She has the most major titles in tennis history before turning age 20, she said. You know, she was number one in the world. She didn't, she made, I think, 32, played 32 tournaments, made 33 finals, or whatever that crazy statistic was from uh, 1991 through 1993. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, or sorry, yeah, 33 finals in 34 tournaments. She won 22 titles, 159 and 12. 55 and 1 at the slams from the start of 91 through February of 93. She won seven titles, made eight finals in uh, nine total possible slams during that stretch of time. So, when she, you know, the best for Monica Seles was the best of all three of these players. So, it really comes down to a balance of things and what do you prefer. And that's
that's why I wanted to compare the three. And I will say before we start, because uh, you know I can already hear the arguments brewing now. Alex, why didn't you bring up Billie Jean King's open era statistics? Why didn't you bring up Ivan Gulagong's open era statistics? I don't think any of you are going to ask me about Margaret Court, and I appreciate you not doing so because I have no desire to talk about Margaret Court whatsoever on this podcast. And there is one player I'm starting to think I snubbed a little bit just because of how good she was in her prime, plus the longevity, plus what she accomplished in doubles, plus her record against some of her peers. Maybe I should have included Martina Hingis in this discussion. I don't think Sharapova qualifies for this discussion. You know, Hingis slams-wise, I think she only won five total, at least in singles. But, you know, that's not including doubles. But you then throw in what she accomplished in doubles. You throw in what she accomplished, how quickly in her career. I think she's the youngest player ever to be ranked number one. She held it for a total of 209 weeks. When she was good, she was exceptional. Yes, yeah, she has the nine, uh, the nine Grand Slam final uh, ch- titles. Excuse me, a couple more finals added onto that. She made the finals of nine other Grand Slams, so five and nine in finals in singles, at least. Of course, so much of her career happened between ninety five oh two in singles. Now in doubles, she has thirteen more titles. Um, that's obviously impressive. That's obviously phenomenal. And there's a case to be made that maybe she belongs in this discussion, but, you know, in 98, Martina Hingis won all four slams uh, in doubles. She won one slam in singles as well. In 99, she went title at the Australian Open, final French Open, final U.S. Open, final World Tour Championships. Oh, by the way, in 97 in singles, she she won all three, or she won three Grand Slams and made the finals of the fourth at the French Open. Uh, yeah, oh, no. this Is this doubles again? No, this is singles. This is just how freaking good she was. See, it's hard to keep it all track because she accomplished so many different things on both a singles and doubles court. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe given longevity, she doesn't quite uh, have the staying power of uh, you know Venus Williams, but she certainly accomplished so much during her career as well. So you could throw her in this discussion, but I, I got sidetracked there. I apologize. That's how good some of these players are. I already told you how sidetracked I got when I was looking at Steffi Groff and all of these other different seasons. But uh, it came down for me. Again, I, I don't compare King, Gulagong, and Court because they just played in such different eras and the structure of the tour and the way, the, the amount of events you were playing and which events you were playing just was so different then than it was for Celis, for Venus, for N, in which they were still different for all three of them, but the experiences were somewhat more similar. So I think it's fair to compare what they all accomplished. And, you know, let's start with the Grand Slams in terms of the comparison because. This is where you look at the total wins. This is, you know, Venus and her longevity certainly shine through on some surface-level stats. You know, I'll, let's start here. Not even Grand Slam. Venus, Justine, they have Olympic gold medals. Celis does not in singles. But total slams played. Venus, 84. By the way, that's the most in WTA Tour history. Celis played 40. Enin played 34. Now, here's where the efficiency starts to lean towards Enin and Celis. Celis, nine titles. That's sixth all-time. Venus and Enin, seven titles. That's tied for eighth. For Celis, she only trails court and the big four. The big four meaning Serena, uh, Everett, Navratilova, and Groff. And by the way, I'm going to refer to them as the big four throughout the rest of this podcast because I just don't want to list all four of their names all of the different times. But, you know, Celis, they're sixth all-time despite playing 44 less total single slams than Venus Williams. You look in, in terms of finals, Venus, sixth, trailing Gulagong in the big four, 
with 16 slam finals, Selic seventh and an eighth. So even though she had, you know, over 44, again, more slams played than Selic, 50 more than Ennin, she only made three and four more finals than the two of them respectively. Venus did make 23 semifinals. That's fifth for all time. She made 39 quarterfinals. That's fifth all time. Celis uh, is seventh on that list all time. The big four for both of those, of course, are the top four. Then you look at total wins. Venus, 269 total wins. That's fifth all time. What's so impressive for Celis is how she continues to qualify for so many of these categories despite having played only 40 slams in her career. And that's a healthy amount. You know, that's 10 seasons worth of slams. But considering the gap she had in her prime years, considering you know that she came back and played as many slams as she did, but she missed a solid what four, five, six chunk there when she could have been in her prime, if not you know certainly winning the events. And in fact, you look at it for herself. Yeah, she missed what ten in a row from the '93 French Open to the '95 U.S. Open. That would have been her like ages, I think, twenty to twenty-three years or 23 maybe at uh, 21 to 24 years and you know the slams before that she had won five of the last six slams going into that 93 French Open when obviously tragedy occurred but that just shows how good she was at the slams during her career uh, that she, in terms of total wins she's ninth all time in only 40 slams and you know Venus is top 10 in wins at every slam in history Celis is top 10 everywhere but Wimbledon but then you move to win percentage and this is a stat that favors Ennin and Celis more. It speaks to when they played the slams during the course of their career, how good they were, as opposed to the longevity of Venus when you start to correct, you know, rack up things like most wins all time, most appearances all time, most matches all time. Of course, Venus is in the, or near or at the top of a lot of those categories. And that's not to knock her. That speaks to her longevity again. But when you're nitpicking, you want to look at things like efficiency. And that's where, by win percentage, you know, Celis is number one at the Australian Open all time, number four at the French, number six at the U.S. Open. But she's fifth all-time in win percentage across all four slams. That's only behind the big four. Enin is sixth all-time across all slams. That's behind the big four and Celis. Venus is 5th at Wimbledon individually, 10th at the U.S. Open individually, but she doesn't qualify for the top 10 all-time in slams, just, you know, not as good consistently week in, week out. And again, maybe if you if you condensed her career, shortened it, uh, maybe that number would look a little bit better. Certainly, you look at for Venus Williams towards the latter half of her career. I mean, yeah, yeah, she was making finals as recently as 2017, but you look 2018, 2019, she didn't advance further than a third round and you know just by she's played 85 slams I mean that's you're gonna have some clunkers some third rounds some second rounds some fourth rounds and even you know to call fourth round a clunker speaks to how good she was over the course of her career but yeah, that, that hurts your win percentage, certainly, versus Selliser. And then when they were playing, they were winning or making deep runs into the second weeks of slam. So they were that good. Uh, again, that speaks to just how high their ceilings were as players. Then you start looking at things like Premier 5 mandatory and, you know, Premier mandatory titles. Ennin's got 10. That's sixth all-time uh, behind a bunch of different players. Again, that's where you, it speaks to the fact that, you know, the format, the style of tournaments change. So Ennin's sixth all-time. Uh, Sellis and Williams are tied for seventh all-time. Ennin's got 10 titles. Sellis Williams, 
nine uh, in terms of finals and again Monica sells in a far smaller sample size than Venus has more finals 18 that's sixth all-time Venus tied for seventh with 15 and in tied for ninth with 14 and then you start to look at things you know like like even beyond that just titles all-time and you know in terms of total titles Celis ninth all-time with 53 Venus 10th all-time with 49 Justine just outside the top 10 with 43 titles I, I can't emphasize enough how many fewer tournaments Monica Seles played than Venus Williams. You know, Venus Williams played over 300 tournaments. For Monica Seles, that just isn't the case, and, you know, it, it's just significantly less than that, and it's not even close. You look for Monica Seles, how many tournaments she played over the course of her career. Uh, if she played, let's see, she won a total of, as I mentioned, 53 titles. She has 122 losses. You do 122 plus 53. I'm going to take a rough estimate and say she played 175 total tournaments, so in over 100 less, 100 fewer tournaments than Venus Williams, she won four more titles. That's exceptional. That speaks to her level of play, I think, as well as anything in terms of titles. The only people she trails are Davenport. Uh, She trails Billie Jean King. She trails Goolagong. She trails uh, Margaret Cord. She trails the Big Four. Maybe I should have thrown Lindsay Davenport in this discussion. Maybe not as high as of of an upside, but in terms of longevity, she can certainly hang with the best of them. And, uh, you know, you throw in another thing at titles. Ennin and Celis both won 10 titles in a season. Celis did it multiple times. Venus Williams never did that. In terms of total finals, Celis is ninth all-time. Venus is 10th all-time. They both have over 20 more than Ennin. This is where you know, though Ennin's five-year prime was better than Venus and Celis, she lacks the longevity of Venus, and she wasn't as dominant in her prime, perhaps, as Celis. That's why she's the perfect middle ground. You know, I already mentioned Venus, sixth all-time in total matches played, sixth all-time in total matches won. But in terms of career win percentage, and this isn't just at the slams, this is across all matches on all surfaces throughout the course of all of their careers. Celis is sixth all-time. She won 82.98% of her matches in her career. She went 595 and 122. That's just ridiculous. Like, you can almost throw out everything else there. She won 82% of her matches in her career. And again, you look at the people she trails. It's the big four plus Margaret Court. And I'm not going to go over again why we're not, you know, why the open era, the 90s and et cetera, are different than when Margaret Court played. But that speaks to her dominance. That speaks to how good she were, was, How what percentage of matches she was winning, uh, her compared to her contemporaries, and just how dominant she was. I mean, yeah, again, you look at that record. It's just, it's absurd. It's crazy how good that is in terms of just win percentage overall. And then you look at Justine Ennin, guess what? She's seventh. She's at 81.95% for her career. So they're both top 10 players in terms of their win percentages over time. And again, for Martina Hangis to, uh, and Martina Hangis, excuse me, for Monica Seles to be as high as she is on this list when she played, she was just that good always. And again, the tra- it's a tragedy that we didn't get to see her extended uh, prime, that we didn't get to see her ages 21 and 22 and 23 and 24 seasons unvarnished by tragedy, by obviously having to overcome so much adversity so it speaks to just how good she was and then of course year-end title she has three she's tied for fifth all-time Ennin has two Venus has one I've already gone through why 
Venus in terms of doubles, you know, significantly outdoes all of the others. But, you know, it really comes down to this. What do you value more? Do you value longevity or do you value someone who was, you know, when they played, struck in by tragedy, but when they played, they were the best player on tour and compared to their peers, compared to, you know, at the time, Navratilova and Steffi Graf. Uh, uh, Monica Seles was better than them just she was or she wasn't better but she was equal to them she showed that level and I don't know if Venus has ever showed the level of uh you know being the top player on tour there's a reason Venus has never ended the year ranked number one and that's not to say she hasn't been really good she obviously would have ended the year number one when she lost three major finals to Serena in in a season uh had it not been for Serena who she played against and you know to have to play Serena your younger sister versus for Celis who would have had the rivalry with Graf, who played Graf so often early in her career. Yeah, those are really different. But in my mind, I think I have to go with Monica Seles. I mean, again, you you talk about the huge factor of what if, what could have been. I mean, Seles threw, and I went through this yesterday, but just again, from 91 to the start of 93, I mean, it's just ridiculous how good she was. She won seven of eight slams that she played. She missed one with injury, but in all eight slams she played, she made the finals at least. She won three straight year-end championships starting in 1990 through 1992. She comes back in 1995, makes the finals of the U.S. Open. Uh, obviously, she drops that final to Steffi Graf, 7 6 she then goes on to win the 96 Australian Open, makes another final at the 96 U.S. Open finals later in her career uh, at the 98 uh French Open as well, and you know she made another final at the year-end championship. She did rebound to get an Olympic bronze medal at the 2000 Olympics in singles. It just sucks because I think she's the only one in this group who you could say tennis-wise and just her level of play compared to her peers that she could she could enter the discussion with a Serena, with a Graf, and with Navratilova and Ever and say, okay, in their best seasons, who did it best? And, you know, there's, as I pointed out, there are reasons why those other four players are on top of the game just through longevity that they were that good for that long. Uh, but Graf was that good. It just wasn't for as long. And Venus is spectacular. Enin is spectacular. Over a five-year streak, Enin won over 90% of her matches, right? She went 53-6, uh, and six essentially, for five straight years. She, you know, that that's as good as it gets. Uh, and she won seven slam titles, all, you know, all of the titles that she has in her career during that five-year stretch. She averaged 14 two-point top 10 wins a year during her best top five stretch. But Monica Seles was a better player at her best than Justine Ennin was. And for Venus, yeah, the longevity is there. But, I, you know, Venus was really solid against all of her peers. I'm not going to rehash all of the records now. But she wasn't definitively better than all of them. And I do think for Monica Seles, I mean, you look at her records, the biggest contemporaries she played at least early in her career are the ones who she would have matched up with before, obviously, everything happened. I mean... 10 and 7 against Navratilova, uh, 20 and 3 against Sanchez Vicario, 9 and 5 against Capriati. Yeah, 10 and 5 against Steffi Graf, but I went through what those metrics were before the stabbing and what that looked like. You know, players like Davenport and Serena and Venus, she played 
after 1993, but she was 20 and one against Conchita Martinez. She was, you know, nine and zero against Manuela Maliva, who again, these were the names she was playing early on in her career. 11 and three against Gabriela Sabatini. Uh, those were the big names. If nine and zero against Annika Huber, uh, those were the people she was playing, and she was beating them routinely. 15 and one against Mary Jo Fernandez. So. I think I'm going to go with Monica Seles, and if you want to take Venus on longevity, I understand that. I don't think the argument—and it's funny because I really thought I was going to end up going with Ennin at the start of all this. I thought, oh, Justine Ennin was so incredible. Of course, she was the one I got to see. Oh, you know, this, that shows maybe I was leaning anti-Venus at the beginning, but as soon as I did the Venus pod, you just look at what she accomplished over the duration of her career, and, you know, Ennin had the higher upside— but Celis has the even higher upside than Justine Ennin. So if you want upside, you have to go Monica Celis and the amount of slams she won in her prime, how good she was at her peak. I'm going to give her that edge. And so, you know, most accomplished. She won more singles titles. Yeah, she doesn't have the doubles titles of Venus Williams, but she won more singles titles. She was better comparatively in her prime to others on tour. I think she's the pick here. And if you want to make a case that, you know, again, it's Venus, it's Ennin, I can see those cases, but give me uh, give me Monica Seles over the others, and, you know, I, I would, again, I, I snubbed uh, Martina Hingis early on, but give me Seles over everyone else post-1980 in terms of the at five spot of the fifth most accomplished WTA player in the Open Harris history. They're all fantastic. They're all phenomenal tennis players in their own right they all are straight to the hall of fame and if they're not there already um but and you know again in terms of off-court contributions if that's something you factor in I don't know what to tell you I was looking purely at what they did on the court and I think on the court based on what she accomplished I have to give the spot to Monica Seles so that's this week's mini break project. Given that we all have a little bit more time on our hands, that there are no tennis results for us to discuss, I'm going to continue my deep dive into tennis history, whether it's looking at specific majors that I found interesting, you know, such as the 2001 Wimbledon, which Gil Gross and I just talked about on our newest episode of CR Classics, which you can find on the Great Shot Podcast podcast feed, as well as on our YouTube channel where you'll see video with Gil and my smiling faces, as well as highlights from the match weaved in as well. Uh, you can go check those out. But, you know, that's what we'll be doing in the mini break moving forward. I've liked these historical deep dives, so I'm going to keep doing them because I've enjoyed learning more and more about our game's past. So be on the lookout for those. And of course, if you missed any of my individual podcasts on Celis and in Williams, I think I did one on Lendl. I've done one on Sampras, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer as well. You can find all of those on our mini break feed from over the past couple of weeks. You can also find podcasts we did with World Team Tennis CEO Carlos Silva, Tennis Channel personality Steve Weissman, Mark Lucero, Ben Rothenberg, John Wertheim, and more. You can also go to our Cracked Interviews podcast feed, hear interviews we did with players like like Amy Frazier, Mitchell Kruger, Claire Liu, Christian, Dennis Kudla, uh, interviews with Chris Woodruff and Paula Anacone as well. We're going across the spectrum, folks. We're trying to keep all of you entertained. And if we can, of course, provide you just a momentary distraction from the daily stresses of all of our day-to-day lives, then we will be doing our job here at Cracked Rackets. If you want to lower the stress of our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, go to our YouTube channel right now. Take the 10 seconds it takes to subscribe to that channel. And you won't miss 
miss any of our Cracked Rackets content moving forward, whether it's a CR classic, whether it's overserved, our look at all of the comedy that happens week in, week out, day in, day out on the professional tour. You can find all of that on our YouTube channel. And of course, since you're subscribing to that, you might as well like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the Great Shot podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, so that you don't miss any of the Cracked Rackets action. But if you do, you can always go to our website, CrackedRackets.com, to check out anything that you missed. You need the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, it's all at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly at Great Shot Pod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff, for the f***ing editing job they do day in, day out. None of this happens without them grinding. I actually thought Westoff might short-circuit before his computer did this week, and we came close. It was 50-50, uh, though Westoff, I think he had that, like, the, the way you plug your computer in, that's Westoff and Red Bull. So uh, he just, you know, Red Bull down, and he did his thing. So shout-out to him, as always, because he is a beast. Shout-out, of course, also to our friends at Diadem Sports. Go to their website, diademsports.com. Use the promo code CR50, 50% off. Shout out to our friends as at Aerobar as well. Use that promo code CRACK30 for 30% off all of your tennis-specific energy bar needs. Shout out again to our Patreon subscriber of the day, Harry Jaden, assistant coach at Michigan State. We appreciate his contribution. I appreciate his friendship. And if you want to learn more about our Patreon, go to patreon.com. Go check out our Cracked Rackets page. We appreciate any contribution any of you might be willing to make but with that in mind for our wonderful sponsors at diadem sports and aerobar for our super producers max ligner and daniel westoff and our entire teams at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin i hope you all have a wonderful and safe weekend and you know what we say that's the break and we will see you all monday thanks everyone 